0: Tired of COVID yet? Well, it doesn't appear that COVID is done with us yet, which means God is not done inviting us, helping us to see well, think well, live well in His story through COVID season. Whenever something happens that's not in our plan, we go through these stages, right? We all know about the stages of grief, Well, we know them in our heads, but when we're forced to walk through them in our own experience, it's like, whoa, often we have to pause, maybe even have someone else help us to see how the stage we're going through is predictable and how to do it well. Whenever we go through a negative event that hits us from the side, maybe head on, it seems to me, and I I haven't done a lot of thinking about it, but Maybe you can help me think about it, but it it seems to me that there are basically four stages we go through. Number one, we react. Some of us more so than others. Much of that reaction is to to try to protect what we can, to find someone to blame, all of those things. Number two, at some point, we start reflecting. Reality sets in and, and we're forced to accept, even though we may not agree with it. And at some point, in order to go through it well, we need to do some releasing, letting go of some things. A lot of times, it's expectations. And then, at that same time, we can begin the process of rebuilding. Maybe not starting from the scratch, but figuring out what we have, what we do have left, and and starting again from there. As you think of COVID season, can can you see yourself in those stages at all? If If you want to pause and talk about it, feel free to do that right now. As we begin this year, our teaching from God's word, from God's story, which he invites us into, is from a very, very pivotal restart period of his story. The life of King David. From the books of Samuel in the Old Testament, we saw last week how David as the the lowest and the least of his brothers was chosen and anointed by God because of his heart. We're going to explore that a little further today. And a a major question God invites us to think through as we process this account is, how do I start again from the heart? I don't know how much has been stripped away from you during this time, but we've all lost or still fear we will lose something. And one way to work through this story well and our experience is to realize how can I just let go of some of those things, release and rebuild from the heart? We'll pick up in the story from where we left off last week. Seeing how David comes onto the scene, turn again to 1 Samuel chapter 16. The reign of Saul, Israel's first king, is starting to unravel. He doesn't see it yet. He's desperately trying to hang on but God does, God says it's over. And secretly, but not, bar, but very definitively, the prophet Samuel has this ceremony with David's family anointing David, the youngest and the least, the one so insignificant he wasn't even invited to the family meeting, the church service. And in front of his family, who have seen him as the kid, the help, God has David anointed as his king because What God sees is David's heart, that he has a heart for God, a heart that will listen to God first and most, a heart that, well, as David himself says, sets the Lord always before him, a heart that does not change when he's at the bottom or at the top. He doesn't take credit for his success. He doesn't blame others for the fact that they didn't include him. So the watershed point in the entire story of David, or the the story of David and Saul, is chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, the the turning point in the entire book. The narrator of this story, the framer of the story, tells us what we should be seeing in this story to this point and what we are to look for in the rest of the story. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. And so Samuel took the oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord, came powerfully upon David, Samuel went to Ramah. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Whoa, (laughs) you can't get any more line drawing, definitive, drastic, and dramatic than that. Remember, this is not what people are seeing at the time. This is what the narrator of the story wants us to see about why and how things are rolling out the way they do, about how it is that God works, how we will operate when we set the Lord always before us, when we see him at our right hand, which we're going to see is really his spirit in our heart. Two kings, the people's choice, God's choice. Two ways. The natural human way, God's way. And as we read the story, the natural thing to ask is what will the difference be between Saul, the people's choice, the human way and David, God's choice. The way God opens up for those who live in his way. The issue is will we operate from the heart by God's Spirit. Now, very briefly, let's get a few things on the table, or perhaps off the table in our minds. We don't know what it means that God sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. We don't know whether this is a a spirit in the sense of an inner disposition, what we might consider a psychiatric condition, or whether God literally allows a demonic spirit to control Saul. There's, There's a lot we still don't know in our own scientific mindset about the interplay of of mental and emotional struggles and spiritual struggles. What we do know is that what Saul experiences internally in his heart is a logical consequence of the way he has been acting and thinking to this point. And we do know that our internal life is a very unique and still mysterious combination of spiritual, physiological, and and cognitive, how we think, elements. We don't know everything about the difference between how the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, which is Jesus, and and God the Holy Spirit work together now or how it's different after Jesus came. What we do know is that everyone who has allowed Jesus to be their Savior, their King, King Jesus, who have received his offer to enter his life by accepting his death as our life, everyone who has done that has been given God's spirit in us, the presence of God's spirit in us makes all the difference and can make way more of a difference than we often allow it to make. We do know, as as Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in, in verse 21, he says, now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. How does he make us stand firm? He anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit as that seal in our hearts, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So to start again from the heart in God's way is to start again with the security the stability, the strength, the insight of the Spirit of God in us. And and sometimes, well, most often, having our life situation disrupted in some way opens the door for that and reveals whether that is how we're operating. And it's when life is against us that we get the opportunity to develop into that. And so, several chapters later, In chapter 4 of uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, verse 16, Paul puts it this way. Here's how we can live in the Spirit. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen Remember that in our story, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So as we read this next episode in the introduction to David, who is empowered by the Spirit of God and the transition from Saul, who has lost the Spirit of God, listen to it carefully and ask the question, what does this say about someone who operates from the heart with the Spirit of God controlling his heart? We're going to see two things today. Number one, what God's Spirit wants to do in our hearts. And number two, how God's Spirit helps us to see life from what He is doing in our hearts. So, what does God's Spirit do in our hearts? You know, when we think of God's Spirit coming on us or in us, we we often tend to think very quickly of, well, it's so easy to think about drama, about something that's exciting and and flashy but if we know the story of God we know that the number one thing the Holy Spirit wants to do is to work in us the number one sign of the Spirit of God and work in us is to see how we are growing and demonstrate what demonstrating what what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in us fruit inner qualities, Attitudes, outlooks that we develop that show up in upbuilding behaviors. Attitudes like, well, here's the list love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. So put that filter on. The fruit of the Spirit, what God wants to do in us, put that filter on as we read this next section. Think about how we see David showing and growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And perhaps you can pick one which you think, whoa, that's the dominant one that David is demonstrating. Let's read chapter 16, beginning at verse 15. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. Music therapy. So Paul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much. David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my servants, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So what did we see here about David's spirit dominated, spirit led, spirit controlled heart? Doesn't this have the fruit of the spirit all written all over it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you know how long this period after David has been anointed by God as king, until the time he is appointed by the people as king. Do you know how long this period is? About 15 to 20 years. This whole time, it's all about one thing demonstrating, developing in his heart the fruit of the Spirit. So, which of the fruit of the Spirit, knowing that, does David show? Love? Well, certainly. Joy? Peace? Patience? Kindness? Faithfulness? Gentleness? Self control? A lot of all of those, it doesn't require a lot of reading into it to see that every single one of these qualities, because they are not individual fruits, they are altogether the fruit of the Spirit. Can't have love without goodness, can't have joy without long-term faithfulness, it's all together. Sometimes one facet of this beautiful, beautiful diamond will come to the fore, but the reason it's beautiful is it's because it's just the face of all of the others that we see. But it's pretty clear that the quality that is most evident in David's life over this period is patience. Right? And obviously a good dose of self-control. Saul and Saul's entire court experienced the love of God's spirit, the joy of God's spirit, the peace of God's spirit, the kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control of God's spirit because David, is willing to allow the empowerment of God's Spirit in him to act patiently, gently, especially with Saul. Patience is not a personality characteristic we inherit. It's a way of acting, coming out of a way of looking at every situation. Some of you might know the name of Mike Tomlin who's a professional football coach with the NFL. He's a a guy who's not a great interview, except for some of his quotable quotes. But he leads his team with, with his own sayings, most of which are quite enigmatic. They have to mull over, get under their skin, and hopefully they get into their psyche. And one of the things that is in short supply in a professional football environment is patience. Most of the time, the advice is, just be patient. You'll get your turn. Don't you hate that advice? How can you be patient? The more you say it, the more you fight feelings of impatience, right? Here's how Mike Tomlin puts it, in a way that has inspired a lot of testosterone-driven, impatient athletes in their development. They will all say to you, as Coach Mike says, Don't be patient, work while you wait. I love that. I think it's what David would have said during this 10 to 15 year period when someone asked him, how can you be so patient? David would have looked at him and said, I'm just working while I wait, doing the job I've been given to do now. It began after his anointing to going back with the sheep. That was his duty. He probably didn't even see it as his development, as it was his assignment, and he took it seriously. Whether people see me or not, recognize me or not, this is what God is trying to do in me. And in doing his sheep work, allowing God to develop his heart and live from a spirit-controlled heart, David is being developed in ways that he has absolutely no idea will be crucial and being God's anointed, God's chosen. As he allowed God to develop his heart as a shepherd, David was developing in ways he has no idea. Number one, he's learning how to be a true leader of people. People are are sheep prone to wander. David is learning this unique combination of protection and direction. As a shepherd, He's learning a lot about how God sees and leads him. As a matter of fact, someone wrote a psalm about that. I think it was David. David has a lot of time that he he could just be sitting, wondering what's happening. But David uses this time productively, working while he waits. For one thing, he learns how how to play a liar something that's a, it's an instrument that's somewhere between a ukulele and a harp. Okay, that's a wide range, I know, but it's a stringed instrument. He becomes skilled at it. He plays, probably composes some songs. He sings for the sheep, but mostly he's singing to God, and he's singing the words of God into his own heart. He's, he's actually working into his own heart, his own psyche, his life for love for God and God's love for him as he's singing. And although it It had nothing to do with his real work of being a shepherd. It's his ability to play the harp that gets him his first job in the king's court with a disturbed Saul, Where he has to do what? Show the fruit of the spirit that he has allowed God to develop in his heart. As David is being a shepherd, he's learning what it means to be responsible. If anything happens to those sheep, it's on me. I own it. And what's important, we're learning in this COVID time, David is learning to live alone, to be alone. Everyone abandoned him, not there for him. And in living alone, David is growing in knowledge of the spirit of God in him, with him, for him. And as David takes his job seriously, with wild animals attacking the sheep, lions and bears. He's actually learning warfare skills and he doesn't know it. He's learning that you don't lead by sitting in an ivory tower. you lead by putting yourself in danger because you've put yourself in the care of God. He is at my right hand, I won't be shaken. He's learning that trust is not just a let go and let God thing, it's actually stepping out and taking something on and in order to do that, David becomes skilled with, well, what's available to him. Rocks, slings, and sticks. Let's think for a few minutes about those rocks, because they're important in the story, right? By the way, this sling, not a kid's slingshot. This was actually a weapon of war, used in battle. Those rocks, they're about the size of, of a baseball tennis ball and when slung those rocks go faster than a professional baseball pitchers fastest fastball okay over a hundred miles an hour so let's use our imagination to fill in the story just a little bit those rocks at first there may have been times when david looked at that rock and kicked it. When he picked up a rock and hucked it in anger, right? But as time went on, those rocks became his, his toys and, and then his development tools. It, it might've begun in a moment of boredom, he wanted to use productively. He sets up a target with a bullseye to see how close he could get with a sling and a rock. And he creates this little competition with himself. When I get 10 out of 10, I'm gonna gonna make the bullseye smaller. And when the bullseye becomes the size of his rock and he gets 10 out of 10, he thinks, what's next? And perhaps like a young developing football quarterback, he sees a tree with a branch and he hangs a rope from a tree and a branch with a with another branch that he's bent and tied together in a circle and hung a rock from the bottom for some weight, and he makes a pendulum and lets it swing to see if he could still hit the target when it's moving. It took a little longer to get 10 out of a 10 out of that. But one day, maybe he's right in the middle of his moving target practice. You notice some movement out of the corner of his eye. A lion, ready to pounce on one of his sheep. Now, a normal shepherd would have said, uh-oh, I guess I'll have to let him have one sheep and then make some noise, and hopefully he'll go off without more loss. That's part of the business, an unavoidable loss. Not David. In the spur of the moment, he loads his sling with the rock in his hand and breathes a quick prayer, lets it fly, whoa! And David has no idea the world he has just opened up for himself. One day, David is called to the sort of court of Saul, and Saul, tormented by an evil spirit, And for over 10 years of not knowing which shawl is going to show up, serving him with the heart, developing and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, what's happening is that the people in Saul's court are watching. And do you know one person who's watching really closely? The heir apparent to Saul's throne. His son, Jonathan. The one person who should have been the most jealous of David becomes the best friend of David because he sees that David is not trying to undermine his father. He is serving his father. David is ministering to, caring for the person who won't let him have his job. Folks, that is a sign of someone who is filled with the spirit of God. And astute observer that David is during this time in Saul's court, David is learning about all of the things that kings do just by watching. As Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by watching. And because of how David served and what did people say about him? Oh yeah, they said, whoa, he's skillful, he's brave, he's a good looking guy. Remember, it's not that God's looking for ugly, unskilled wusses. David has the physical assets. But the all important thing, verse 18, and the spirit of the Lord was with him. They see that the Lord is with them, not because he has these amazing assets, but because of the qualities the Spirit is developing in his heart that he is showing to Saul. During this season, you know, it's easy to see what we've lost or in danger of losing, putting things on hold. The only curve that's flattening and actually going down is the trajectory we had planned for our lives God is inviting us to start again, right now, from where you are, from the heart, growing and seeing that God's spirit is still in you. And if you set the Lord before you, he will help you develop from within the qualities that will make people say, wow, what a servant of God. God is with them, just working at what we can while we wait. So one day, we don't actually know in the timeline exactly where this next scenario fits in, but one day David is sent by his father on another servant mission. His father gets another servant to be a temporary sheep sitter, and David becomes the skip the dishes driver, taking some provisions to his older brothers who are doing the real work, being the heroes at war. Which brings us to chapter 17, David and Goliath, which is not really about David and Goliath. It's about David and Saul and the spirit of God. David has the spirit of God. Saul has lost the spirit of God. Goliath is just, is just the foil, the, the context in which this story plays out. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damien. Don't bother looking it up on a map. It's not where it is that matters. It's what it is. Ephes Damien means boundary of blood. There'd been a lot of blood spilled in that valley between the two hills, between the territory of the Philistines and the land in which the Israelites had settled. Now the the Israelites are not in Philistine territory and they're not trying to claim Philistine territory. For years, the Philistines have been marauding, raiding, and trying to claim Israel's territory. By By the way, quick backstory here. Why is it that Saul became king of Israel? Do you remember? Why did the people want a king like the other nations? 1 Samuel chapter eight, you can go there and read it later, because the people of Israel became tired of the Philistines trying to raid their territory. And they want a king like the other nations, like the Philistines to lead them in battle, to go in front of them in battle. Now it's not that God did not want them to have a king ever. The problem is they want a king for the wrong reasons. They were tired of just trusting God. They wanted someone visible, someone they could see, and most importantly, that their enemies could see. And when you want something, even something that's not wrong, when you want it for the wrong reasons, what happens? We are in grave danger of making the wrong choice. God had told them what kind of a king to look for when it came to the time that they demanded a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, be sure you appoint a king over you whom God chooses. Oops. Verse 18, be sure it's a king whose primary focus is to lead by example, by the systems and structures he puts in place, and by his public words. A king whose focus is to lead you in following God and trusting God. And a king who won't make it about himself in any way. What do they choose? They choose a man who was, for Samuel chapter 9 verse 2, a man who was head and shoulders taller than all of the other Israelites. He's our guy. With him at the front Everyone will be intimidated. We won't even have to fight as many battles. They will be scared to take us on. And so, chapter 17, verse 2, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. No problem, right? We got Saul, we got our man. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. We're going to go through uh, that a little later. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. When Goliath says, Give me a man, two things are happening. Number one. He's giving Israel an option to keep this from being another where the blood is poured out boundary line. This was called a representative battle. It happened occasionally, apparently, probably not as often as we might think. It's let's settle this the easy way. Your best, our best. Only one man's blood is shed. The number two thing is he is allowing Saul to step up and be the man that he was chosen by the people and actually appointed by God to me. Choose a man, he says. Well, they had already chosen their man. Saul is the guy they chose, and Saul was the natural guy in all of Israel to do this. He is bigger and stronger than everyone. It was for this day that Saul was chosen and Saul cannot step up. It's fascinating because this description of Goliath is perhaps the most detailed physical description of any human being in the entire Bible. That's what they see. There are more words used to describe how they see Goliath and his armor than there are to describe the battle later on because this account has nothing to do with how to kill giants. It's all about how we see giants, big deals, how we see them when we're not living by God's spirit, how I see those things against me when I'm living for my story, not living in God's story, and how we get to see them when we live from the heart by God's spirit. And the longer they look, the bigger Goliath gets. It's like this balloon. Look at verse, what is it? Verse uh, four, end of verse four and on. Just look at that as I read. Number one, he is a champion. I mean, this guy has a reputation. You don't realize what this guy's done. Nobody's ever beat him. goliath Scott swagger. He was over nine feet tall. Well... Probably about six foot nine, actually, taller than Saul by about four inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing about 200 pounds 90 kilograms. Even if you got to the guy, you will never get through him. He had bronze legging, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And look at the spear in his hands, his his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Was Goliath big or what? Yes, Goliath was big, just like this balloon is big. What are we looking at? We're looking at the outside, the externals. The surface, every description about Goliath is external stuff. You know, we make a big deal in our mind about the external issues, don't we? How good we look or not, how big we are or not, how smart we are, how fast we are, how many things we have, what people will see, what we get to experience in our external world that we see next. When David comes onto the scene, is that when you stop looking at the outside things, how big is Goliath really? That big. Verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and take ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and and bring some assurance from them. There with Saul, all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines, fighting against the Philistines. That's what the, that's what the people back home are thinking. Our boys are out there protecting us, fighting us for us. Yea, troops. Jesse has no idea, and so David hands out in in excited anticipation. He's looking forward to see what God is doing for his people through his troops. And he's looking forward to blessing his brothers. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out. As Jesse had directed, he, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. There's a lot of incentive here. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see how David sees things differently? How a, how a person who has the spirit of God sees differently from everyone else? What do they see? Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel. And that's what Goliath had said. Verse 10, am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Saul, where are you? Do you hear what he's saying? These are not your people. These are God's people. This day I defy the armies of Israel. But when you lose the spirit of God or look at life not controlled by the spirit of God, it's, it is all about me. How is this impacting me? How does this making me look? How will I not be seen in this? David, what does he see? What, this is an uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, he is outside the covenant, the promise of God's protection. Who is he that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is not about how to kill giants in our lives. It's about the fact that we only see those things as giants, as big deals, when we're making the story about me. David said he's not threatening us. He is defying God. You guys, he has no idea. We can't lose. The one who has the Spirit of God is empowered by the Spirit of God not to say, if only. If only we had a bigger guy. If only this would go away. The one empowered by the Spirit of God no longer says, if only, but what if? What if we saw this as an opportunity to let this be God's battle, not my battle? That's all David is asking them to see. Everyone says to David, what everybody says who tries to bring God into the equation has heard. Sorry, everyone says to David, what everybody who tries to bring God into the equation has heard. Ad nauseum, David, what do you know? You are not living in the real world. His brother says it to him, verse 28, Eliab, his oldest brother, who do you think you are? You don't get it. As a matter of fact, you're just trying to be a hero. I know your heart. You think you're somebody. Hmm. David hasn't said anything about himself. He's talked about God. Do you think Eliab might still be a little jealous that he wasn't chosen? Saul actually is more gracious than David's brother. David starts talking about God being with him, and Saul can't argue, but says, you know, okay, go out there, but at least you've got to protect yourself. Here, let me help you. Saul wants to be able to wash his hands of it if it doesn't work, and if it does work, he gets to take the credit. Yeah, you know, it was, it was my armor. David says, uh-uh, that's all baggage. Weighs me down. By the way, isn't it amazing the real world baggage we allow ourselves to accumulate and carry? Everyone thinks David is not really living in the real world. I love David's response to Saul. Let me tell you about my real world, he says. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or bear, Came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will just be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I love David's response. Let me tell you about my real world. But it's not just about David's real world, it's about David's real God. It's like, do you think God's any different in this real world than in my real world? What does the Spirit of God in me do? The Spirit of God in me helps me see that it's not about my story, It helps me get over my story, my needs, my dreams, my issues, my situation. The Spirit of God in me helps me see that the story that I have been invited into is the story of God, which will end well. As the psalmist says in Psalm 121, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. How are you seeing today? How are you seeing your real world? Are you you starting again from the heart? Oh, there's one other thing we have to see from this story. How is this battle introduced? Chapter 17, verse 1. It's introduced as a battle in a place called the boundary of blood with a battle plan that involves a plan where no more blood has to be shed. A battle between two representative champions. And that word champion literally means the man, or in some places, the man in between. A battle in which David, the one who was seen as a nobody, but who is God's chosen, fulfills the plan. And this story is a key event through which God wanted his people to see and learn that ultimately God's king would be won from the line of David, who was greater than David, who would come and fight the greater battle, the battle over our hearts, the battle for our hearts, the battle of all battles, to win back all people he had created who had made it all about themselves. He didn't take up rocks. He took up a cross. Read how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2 and think about it in light of this story. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your own flesh and heart, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness before God, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to his cross. And what was it he did on the cross? He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. Jesus did what David could not do. He made an end to all Goliaths by absorbing, taking on himself the real Goliath. That is why the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the real watershed, the real battle in the story of God. No, we didn't cover the bit that we want to see about Goliath being killed. Because we know that Jesus has done that for us. So let's go back as we wrap up to that process we talked about. Reflect, or sorry, react, reflect, release, rebuild from the heart. The key point of release, every single time comes when we reflect what the real battle is not the things we're reacting to and making big deals of and see that because Jesus has won that battle i can release myself all of myself to him knowing that in him i will stand and just simply keep rebuilding again in the heart and from the heart so has there any been anything that's that's just over time been accumulating that this situation is forcing you to say, you know what, I need to release that. Let it go. Ways that you've been thinking, things you've been fearing, stuff you've been focusing on, release it. So you can rebuild from your heart because it's not by might nor by power but by My spirit in your heart, says the Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you again that you have sent a champion. One that people saw came as one of us who took on the real battle for us. And Father, today we thank you that when we do that, we get the Spirit of God in our hearts. And in every single situation, the Spirit of God invites and empowers us to live from the heart for your story. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.